The Premonitions Bureau by Sam Knight Read by Richard Golding A curved archway of red bricks framed the front door, to the left of which hung a black sign with gold lettering. Miss Lorna Middleton, teacher of pianoforte and ballet dancing. Miss Middleton had dark, wavy hair, buck teeth and a pronounced New England accent, which combined with a degree of innate personal magnetism to make Miss Middleton an object of some fascination in post-war Edmonton. On a cold winter's day, when Miss Middleton was about seven years old, she came home from school for lunch and watched her mother, Annie, frying eggs on the stove. After about two minutes, and without warning, the egg lifted itself up. It rose up and up until it almost touched the ceiling, Miss Middleton wrote in a self-published memoir, which appeared in 1989. She raced back to school to tell her friends. But Annie was concerned. She consulted a fortune teller who told her that an egg that flew out of the pan symbolised the death of someone close to you. A few weeks later, one of Annie's best friends, who had recently married, died and was buried in her wedding dress. I cannot say what I really felt or indeed what I feel now, Miss Middleton wrote. She experienced premonitions in one form or another throughout her life. She compared the feeling to knowing the answer in a spelling test. Names and numbers would appear to her. I am drawn to these events by what appears to be a blaze of light, she wrote. An electric light bulb. When Miss Middleton was eleven, she felt an irresistible urge to contact her piano teacher, a young German man who had recently been hospitalised for nerve trouble. After cajoling her parents to call him, she found out that he had poisoned himself in his apartment. Miss Middleton was an only child, and she sensed a world that was particularly responsive and legible to her. Everything happened just as I knew it would, she wrote to a cousin. Her mother asked her to stop saying what would happen next. On a Saturday night in March 1941, Miss Middleton was preparing to go out with a friend for the first time since the start of the Blitz the previous autumn. There was a St. Patrick's Day celebration at Prince's Dance Hall in Palmer's Green. The air raid sirens had sounded, but Miss Middleton was determined to go. It was only after setting off that Miss Middleton experienced what she later described as a most strange sensation. She took her friend's arm and they returned home, where they sat and played cards with Annie. While they were playing, at 8.45pm, a German bomber was hit by anti-aircraft fire and jettisoned its payload of high explosives over Palmer's Green. Prince's was filled with dancers. A 16-year-old girl named Wynne was sitting with her friends when she felt a great rush of wind as the side of the building came off. You don't hear anything. That was when the bomb dropped, she told the BBC in an interview. Wynne was pulled from the rubble. Only two people had been killed. Outside the hall, however, on green lanes, an electric trolley bus had been caught in the heart of the explosions. A firefighter, George Walton, arrived within moments and boarded the bus. Forty-three passengers, quite dead, were sitting, standing and reading their newspapers. 
It was not unusual, during the Blitz, to believe that your life had been saved or altered by a premonition. The shattered streetscapes and possibility of death made the city an uncanny place, in which it was not necessarily easy to delineate what was real and what only existed in people's minds. Premonitions continued to inform and change the direction of Miss Middleton's life. I see no reason why this gift should be any more frightening than having a good head for mathematics, Miss Middleton would say. She would bring out sketches of recent visions to show her music students, and occasionally complain about all the information reaching her. She would say sometimes, I just turn it off, I'm too busy, Christine Williams, a former pupil, recalled, and she would wave her hand. On the night of the 20th of October, 1966, when she was 52, Miss Middleton had a restless night. The next morning, at around 6am, she had a powerful feeling of foreboding. I awoke choking and gasping and with the sense of the walls caving in, she wrote soon afterwards. Miss Middleton told her partner, Les Bacchiarelli, about the ominous feeling. At 8am, Miss Middleton accepted a cup of tea. A little more than an hour later, a group of labourers who were working on an enormous heap of coal waste in South Wales also paused to make a cup of tea. The valley below was hidden under a layer of mist. Since the First World War, spoil from the coal mine had been hauled up the side of Merthyr Mountain on a tramway. The waste included boiler ash, mine rubbish, discarded coal, slurry and tailings. Hour by hour, tram by tram, the heaps grew dark and conical, high on the valley rims. By the autumn of 1966, tip number seven rose 111 feet above the slope. It contained enough slurry, tailings and mine detritus to fill St Paul's Cathedral one and a half times over. Weeks of heavy rain had saturated the hills and the coal waste balanced on top. When the slingers and the crane driver arrived at the summit, just before 7.30 on the morning of the 21st of October, they noticed that the surface had sunk about ten feet in the night. A slinger, Di Jones, was sent down the mountain to report the movement. There was no working telephone on the tip because the line had been stolen. By the time Jones returned with the leader of the team, Leslie Davis, at around 9am, the top of the heap had fallen another ten feet. Davis suggested that they make a round of tea before the men began the work of moving the crane. The slingers and Davis headed for the shack. Gwyn Brown, the crane driver, stayed by the crane and looked down the hillside. The valley was still carpeted by fog. There was no view of the close-packed terraces, churches and small shops of Abavan. As Brown glanced down, the heap rose up. It did not make sense. It started to rise slowly at first, the crane driver later said. I thought I was seeing things. Then it rose up after pretty fast, at a tremendous speed. A dark, glistening wave burst out of the hillside and poured down, carrying the rest of the heap with it. The noise was tremendous. This was an avalanche. Sheep, hedges, cattle, a farmhouse with three people inside were smothered. The westernmost street in the village, which lay against the mountainside, was Moy Road, 
where Abavan's two schools were situated. The wave reached them at 9.15, burying the primary school, which was full of children answering the register, spelling the word P-A-R-A-B-L-E, paying their dinner money. Colliery trams and boulders crashed through the walls. The rear of the school was crushed beneath a dark heap 30 feet high. The senior school was only partially hit. 144 people were killed by the tip slide in Abavan, 116 of them children. The BBC broadcast a news flash at 10.30am. The lunchtime news was how the Prime Minister Harold Wilson heard of the disaster. No one was pulled alive from the wreckage after 11 o'clock in the morning. In 24 hours, the world had learned the name of Abavan and its meaning a place whose children had been buried alive by coal waste, piled up by their fathers. During the morning of the 22nd of October, a dark green Ford Zephyr nosed its way into the village. At the wheel was John Barker, a 42-year-old psychiatrist with a keen interest in unusual mental conditions. Barker was a senior consultant at Shelton Hospital, a mental institution outside Shrewsbury. At the time, he was working on a book about whether it was possible to be frightened to death. In the early news reports from Abavan, Barker had heard that a boy had escaped from the school unharmed, but later died of shock. The psychiatrist had come to investigate, but realised he had arrived too soon. When Barker reached the village, victims were still being dug out. Barker was married and had three young children of his own. He was appalled by what he saw. Parents who had lost their children were standing in the street, looking stunned and hopeless, and many were still weeping. But Barker did not get back in his car and drive away. He had long been interested in subjects that struck others as macabre or inexplicable. He was, in every outward sense, an orthodox psychiatrist. He had studied at Cambridge University and at St George's Medical School in London, but he also chafed at the limits of his field. Barker believed that there was a new dimension to psychiatry, waiting to be incorporated into mainstream science. He was a member of Britain's Society for Psychical Research, which was founded in 1882 to investigate the paranormal, and for some years had been interested in the problem of precognition, when people seemed to know what was going to happen before it actually did. In Abavan, Barker sensed that he was on the scene of something momentous, though he wasn't sure what. Bereaved families spoke of dreams and portents. Barker heard the story of Errol May Jones, a ten-year-old girl, not given to imagination. According to a statement written by Glanant Jones, a local minister signed by Errol May's parents, the day before the disaster she said to her mother, Mummy, last night I dreamt I went to school and there was no school there. Something black had come down all over it. The next morning, Errol May was buried in the school. In the days after his visit to Abavan, Barker came up with an idea for an unusual study. Given the singular nature of the disaster and its total penetration of the national consciousness, he decided to gather as many premonitions as possible of the event, and to investigate the people who had them. 
Barker wrote to Peter Fairley, the science editor of London's Evening Standard, and asked him to publicise the idea. The men had met the previous year, when Fairley had written a double-page feature about Barker's work on fear and death. Fairley had a proselytizer's faith in science, that one day it would answer all the questions we have ever had. He was open to theories about telepathy, extraterrestrial life, and the mystery of seeming coincidence. On the 28th of October, Fairley carried Barker's appeal in his World of Science column, which ran on a Friday. Did anyone have a genuine premonition before the coal tip fell on Abavan? That is what a senior British psychiatrist would like to know, Fairley wrote. The article describes the kinds of visions that Barker was interested in. A vivid dream, a vivid waking impression, telepathy at the time of the disaster, and clairvoyance. Fairley's column implied that the study was somehow unauthorised. Barker had asked to remain anonymous. The Evening Standard had a circulation of almost 600,000. Miss Middleton liked to look through it in bed in the afternoon. She posted an account of her premonition on the 1st of November. Psychiatrist John Barker's office was on the first floor of Shelton Hospital, a Victorian asylum two miles west of Shrewsbury. Shelton's buildings were set in 15 acres of grounds behind high brick walls. For more than a century, the hospital was a closed stopping place to which judges and doctors dispatched the senile and the strange from a large part of the rural Midlands and Welsh borders. The institution was built to last forever. Shelton had its own steam laundry, barbers, upholstery workshop and brewery. Beyond the chapel lay the kitchen gardens and a piggery. People did not get better. The ingrained purpose of Shelton, and dozens of county asylums like it, was not to cure people who were mentally ill, but to sequester them from the world. By the middle of the 20th century, when Shelton's population briefly topped a thousand, Around two-thirds of the patients were chronics, long-stayers who were not expected to leave. Almost everyone wore clothes that were stained beyond belief. They were, in almost every sense, marooned. Doctors who worked at Shelton called it a remote bin and a dumping ground. In Shrewsbury, the hospital was known as the Mental. In truth, the place was no better and no worse than many county asylums at that time. Shelton was in the throes of something like reform. In 1964, the locks on all but two of the wards were removed. Railings and walls within the grounds were replaced with trees and bushes. There was a psychologist and occupational therapy. Jazz bands came to perform but the hospital remained powerfully constrained by what it was. There were staff who were as institutionalised as the patients. The hospital superintendent, John Littlejohn, was a former colonial administrator who struggled to make decisions. I didn't have any sense of anything being hidden or that there was any cruelty, a porter who worked at Shelton during this period recalled, but it was a very, very scary place. 
Barker started work at Shelton in the summer of 1963. He joined a team of four consultants. Barker was on the side of a revolution that was taking place in mental health. In the 60s, political reform, pharmaceutical possibilities and the intellectual atmosphere of psychiatry made it a lively and contested field. Barker quickly latched on to David Enoch, another young consultant at Shelton. Together, the two psychiatrists worked to improve conditions at Shelton. They phased out straight electroconvulsive therapy, in which ECT was administered without drugs. Enoch organised adult education sessions. As a result of the two of us there, heaps of things happened, Enoch said. The old ones went on doing their own thing. The two men also shared a fascination with what Enoch called psychiatric orchids, the most unusual mental illnesses. In the late 50s, Barker had written his doctoral thesis about Munchausen syndrome, whose sufferers compulsively feign disease or harm themselves in order to be admitted to hospital, often undergoing needless surgery. Enoch invited Barker to contribute a chapter on Munchausen's to his own larger study of rare conditions, Some Uncommon Psychiatric Syndromes, which was first published in 1967 and is now a classic textbook. In the original edition, the case studies of erotomania, obsessional love, Othello syndrome, a delusion of your lover's infidelity, and Couvard syndrome, in which a man seems to experience pregnancy at the same time as his partner, have a fable-like poetic quality. There is a doleful wonder at what the mind is capable of. The young consultants at Shelton were comfortable with attention. Enoch was a regular guest on Let's Face Facts, a general knowledge show on regional television, which made him a minor celebrity in Western England and Wales. Barker was a prolific correspondent in the letters pages of The Lancet and the British Medical Journal. Barker received 76 replies to his appeal for premonitions of the Abavan disaster that had been placed in Peter Fairley's Evening Standard column. Two nights before, a 63-year-old man named J. Arthur Taylor from Staxteads, a village on the edge of the Lancashire Moors, dreamed that he was in Pontypridd in South Wales. He had not been in the town for many years and he was trying to buy a book. He faced a large machine with buttons. Now, I've never seen a computer. This may have been one, I just don't know, Taylor wrote. Then, all of a sudden, while I was standing by this big machine, I looked up and saw Abavan, written as if suspended in white lettering against a black background. Then I turned and I saw through a window rows of houses and everything seemed derelict and desolate. Taylor did not recognise the word until he heard it on the radio on the day of the disaster. In Plymouth, the evening before the coal slide, Constance Milder had a vision at a spiritualist meeting. Milder, who was 47, told six witnesses that she saw an old schoolhouse, a Welsh miner and an avalanche of coal rushing down a mountain. At the bottom of this mountain of hurtling coal was a little boy with a long fringe looking absolutely terrified to death. Then, for quite a while, I saw rescue operations taking place. I had an impression that the little boy was left behind and saved. He looked so grief-stricken. Milder recognised the boy later on the evening news. In Hillingdon, 
Grace Richardson, a 30-year-old film technician, was bothered all week by an intermittent smell, earthy and decaying, which she recognised as the smell of death. About an hour before the disaster, she asked a colleague named George Jordan, who worked next to her, whether he could smell anything unusual. He said no. About 15 minutes after the school was buried, Richardson jumped up from her chair, overwhelmed, and said that something terrible had happened. Her face was highly inflamed and she was breathing very heavily, Jordan wrote in an accompanying note to Barker. Neither of us or anyone else in the machine room had mentioned or heard of any disaster. Barker wrote back to the percipients, as he called them, asking for details and witnesses. Of the 60 plausible premonitions, there was evidence that 22 were described before tip number 7 began to move. The material convinced Barker that precognition was not unusual among the general population. As a doctor, Barker was particularly drawn to seven correspondents, whose premonitions were accompanied by physical as well as mental symptoms. One of the seven was Alan Hensher, who worked on the Continental Telephone Exchange for the post office. Hensher's letter was dated the 29th of October, the day after Fairley's article appeared. I accept that I am able to foretell certain events, but I have no idea how or why, Hensher wrote. 24 hours before the Abavan disaster, Hensher was working overtime at the GPO's international switchboard in Faraday House in London. According to Hensher, most of his premonitions were preceded by painful headaches, a band of steel around his head, that worsened over the course of days. But his feelings before Abavan were instant. It just hit me without warning. I began to tremble all over the body, felt lethargic and found it very difficult to concentrate on my work. I did mention to a lady sitting next to me at her inquiry as to whether I was feeling ill that a big disaster was taking place in this country which could cost many lives. Barker posited the existence of what he called a pre-disaster syndrome that might be experienced by a small subset of the population. Barker theorised that some people might have bodily sensations ahead of important or emotional events, not unlike twins who say that they feel each other's pain even when they are hundreds of miles apart. Is this perhaps a hitherto unrecognised medical or psychosomatic syndrome akin perhaps to the phenomenon known as the sympathetic projection of pain? Barker asked in a paper for the Journal of the Society for Psychical Research, which was published in 1967. Clearly, these human disaster reactors would appear to require much further study. Barker saw great promise in the Abavan premonitions, but he was also aware of the difficulties that stymied research of this kind. Barker acknowledged that even if these warnings had been publicly recorded at the time, there was no reason why they would have been believed or acted upon. Many of the percipients who responded to Fairley's article were simply grateful for being heard. These are my facts, one wrote. I welcome the opportunity to inform you of these things, as most people are inclined to think one mad if one discusses them. Barker was determined to broaden his Abavan experiment. Fairley was a regular science commentator on the BBC and on ITV, Britain's first commercial TV channel. The two worked together to publicise the premonitions. 
On the 2nd of December, five weeks after the first appeal appeared in the Evening Standard, Fairley, Barker and a number of the Abavan recipients were invited to appear on The Frost Programme, a live ITV interview show with David Frost, the star of late-night television. Miss Middleton and Grace Richardson, the film technician who smelled death, were among around a dozen of Barker's seers who were invited to the broadcast. Some travelled hundreds of miles to take part. The night of the broadcast was the first time Fairley and Barker had encountered most of the Abavan recipients in person. When they gathered in the green room, Fairley was taken aback. Weirdos would be too strong a description, but they were certainly different, the journalist later wrote. About 20 minutes before the programme was due to start, Frost came into the room, made some light conversation and then disappeared. During the first half of the show, Frost interviewed John Betjeman, the future poet laureate. Barker and his seers were supposed to appear after the commercial break. The call never came. After the broadcast, Frost came backstage to apologise. Barker was still furious when he got home to Shrewsbury. But after the encounter in the green room, Fairley understood Frost's reluctance to allow the group on national television. Abavan was still raw in people's minds. The seer's visions were fragmentary and easy to pick apart. Fairley suggested to Barker that they take a more ambitious and open-ended approach, to log premonitions as they occurred and see how many were born out in reality. The world is full of people who claim to have seen something coming, but they always speak out after the event, Fairley wrote. In the weeks before Christmas, Fairley and Barker approached Charles Wintour, the editor of the Evening Standard, to open what they called a Premonitions Bureau. For a year, readers of the newspaper would be invited to send in their dreams and forebodings, which would be collated and then compared with actual happenings around the world. Wintour was game for unusual ideas. He agreed to the experiment. Fairley had a date stamp made for the Premonitions Bureau. He devised an 11-point scoring system for the predictions, five points for unusualness, five points for accuracy, and one point for timing. Barker and Fairley prepared to start logging premonitions in the first week of 1967. The Premonitions Bureau received 20 warnings in its first 48 hours. As Christmas 1966 approached, the Evening Standard, like most of the country's major newspapers, had a reporter standing by to cover Donald Campbell's attempt to break the water speed record on Coniston Water in the Lake District. Campbell was an idol of Britain's post-war jet age. He chased speed records on land and on water in a series of vehicles all named Bluebird, after the Maeterlinck play. The faster man travels, the more difficulties he encounters, the more he is determined to overcome and understand them. And as he proceeds, stage by stage, he penetrates farther into the unknown, Campbell wrote in 1955. Campbell used powerful experimental technology. He was also strongly superstitious. 
an enamel medallion of St Christopher, the protector of travellers, was screwed into his instrument panel. He carried Mr Whoppet, a lucky teddy bear, every time he climbed into a cockpit. On Coniston Water in the winter of 1966, Campbell named his fears aloud and confronted them anyway. On the 13th of December, a bright, frosty day, when no one expected him to take the boat out, Campbell piloted Bluebird K7, his jet-engined hydroplane, up to 267 miles per hour and hit a seagull, which he considered a bad omen. The collision made a dent on the boat, which he refused to fix. He told a television crew about the time when he had driven his gas-turbine-powered car over 400 miles per hour on damp, treacherous sand on Lake Eyre in Australia in 1964. Campbell had been afraid to turn the car round and complete his record attempt. While he sat still in the desert, an image of his father, who had also been a speed record-breaker and who had died in 1946, appeared as a reflection in his windscreen. Don't worry, it'll be all right, boy, his father said, and Campbell drove back even faster than before. Explain it as you will. I cannot, he told rapt reporters on the lake shore. On Christmas Day, with no engineers or safety team, Campbell persuaded a friend in the village to help him take Bluebird out on the water, and he roared up and down alone. At a New Year's Eve party at the Sun pub, he toasted the press at midnight. I know that you're all waiting for me to break my neck, he said. Campbell played cards to pass the time, waiting for the lake to still. A few evenings later, after a day of sleet and frost, Campbell was playing Russian patience. He dealt himself the ace of spades, followed by the queen. He told David Benson, a friend who wrote for the Daily Express, that Mary, Queen of Scots, had drawn the same cards before her beheading in 1587. He stayed up late. I have the most awful premonition I'm going to get the chop this time, Benson remembered Campbell saying. I've had the feeling for days. The next morning was the 4th of January, a Wednesday. Campbell had a breakfast of cornflakes and a coffee, laced with brandy. There was a slight swell on Coniston Water, but it was calm enough to launch Bluebird at 8.40am. In order to break his own water speed record, Campbell had to complete two one-kilometre runs up and down the lake, at an average speed of more than 276.33 miles per hour. At 8.50am, the first edition of the Evening Standard went to the presses, announcing the launch of the Premonitions Bureau. If you dream of disaster, ran the article's headline. At the same minute, Campbell entered the second one-kilometre run of his water speed attempt on Coniston Water at 328 miles per hour. He was beyond the world record, well into the unknown. He had not left enough time for the wake of the hydroplane to settle on the lake, and as Campbell sped back, Bluebird began to bounce hard on the water. She rose high into the air, somersaulted, and killed him. Photographs of the flying boat and the story of Campbell's ominous cards filled the front page of the newspaper by the late afternoon. A radio recording preserves Campbell's last words as he streaked along. Hello, the bow's up. I'm going, he says. 
and then there is the sound of a small sigh. The BBC Home Service broadcast an item about the Premonitions Bureau the morning after Campbell's death on Coniston Water. The Today programme reported that this sort of foresight is now being taken a good deal more seriously. During an interview with Fairley, which went out just before 7.20am, millions of people in Britain heard how the Evening Standard had collected 70 apparent premonitions of the Abavan disaster and was now embarking on a year-long experiment to investigate the phenomenon more widely. We're asking anyone who has a dream or a vision or an intensely strong feeling of discomfort which seems to involve somebody else, danger to somebody else or to themselves, to ring us, Fairley said. He gave out the newspaper's switchboard number, Fleet Street 3000. Fairley was asked whether he was expecting lots of visions of certain events. Well, I have a horrible feeling that we shall get a lot of letters and phone calls from cranks and highly imaginative people, he replied. But I don't want to put these people off, necessarily, because a lot of highly imaginative people are sometimes thought to be the people who genuinely have a gift of premonition. The Premonitions Bureau became a department within Fairley's small, cluttered domain on the long row of desks for specialist reporters in the centre of the Evening Standard newsroom. Fairley had an assistant, Jennifer Preston, who was a natural fit for the Premonitions Bureau. She had an abiding interest in the occult. She couldn't pass a gypsy selling lavender without falling into conversation. Barker corresponded with the percipients from his Abavan study, but members of the public who got in touch with the Premonitions Bureau reached Fairley's desk at the Standard. It was Preston who logged the telephone calls, filed the letters and cross-referenced the visions that arrived against a dozen daily newspapers checking for possible matches. She sorted the Bureau's warnings into 14 categories, which included royalty, personalities, racing, fire and non-specified disasters. In print... Fairly professed a careful neutrality about whether it was possible to see the future. I make only two promises, he wrote in the Evening Standard during the Bureau's first week in operation. Nobody will be scoffed at, and their premonitions will be treated as confidential until the inquiry is complete. Let us simply get at the truth. Privately, Fairley had his own theories about how precognition might work. He wondered if people glimpsed the future through a form of telepathy. He compared our thoughts to radio waves, which other minds were able intermittently to tune into. He thought that if the phenomenon was real, it was likely to be almost entirely subconscious. The Premonitions Bureau received 20 warnings in its first 48 hours. One spoke of a train crash, two predicted passenger planes coming down in the Atlantic. We shall see, Fairley wrote in the Standard on the 6th of January. If the first year of the experiment showed potential, Fairley intended to present the results to Parliament and to the Medical Research Council to see if they justified an official national early warning system of some kind. On the BBC, Fairley was asked what he would do if the Bureau recorded, say, 15 similar premonitions of a looming disaster. Clearly, if one had remarkable similarities and a large number of premonitions affecting a specific event, he said, I couldn't possibly stand by. One Saturday in August 1955, 
a 31-year-old Barker had been on duty at St Ebers, a mental hospital outside Epsom in Surrey, when he was asked to examine a young man who had just arrived. Barker was midway through his psychiatry diploma. When Barker asked the patient to lie on a bed for a physical exam, the man became irritable and aggressive. After a few minutes of resistance, the patient lifted his shirt to show Barker his torso, which was crisscrossed with surgical incisions. On the patient's back, Barker found traces of 20 lumbar punctures. He listened sympathetically as the young man then related a vague and convoluted medical history. I really imagined that some of his answers made sense to me at the time, Barker recalled. But he was also puzzled that the man who seemed physically well had required so many operations. Barker left the room to consult a senior colleague who told him that this could be a case of Munchausen syndrome. Barker admitted the patient, whom he later called Morris, sedated him and put him in one of the hospital's locked wards for the night. On the Sunday morning, Barker returned to St Ebbers to find that Morris had destroyed furniture on the ward, insulted the nurses and kept the other patients awake through the night, shouting. He had Morris locked in a smaller room, but the patient promptly escaped through a narrow side window. In 1956, Barker qualified as a psychiatrist. He spent the next four years seeking out nine other Munchausen's patients in hospitals around the country for his doctoral thesis, which was one of the first clinical studies of the condition. Morris remained the principal character in Barker's thesis. In April 1957, with the help of Morris's father, Barker traced him to a hospital outside Aylesbury. Barker asked Morris if he would undergo some psychological tests. Barker watched and listened to Morris, wondering how such an insignificant little man was capable of deceiving skilled and experienced doctors. Two years later, a friend of Barker's called him from a casualty department in Wandsworth. Morris had walked in, asking for a head X-ray after claiming to have fallen out of a bus. Barker arranged to have Morris transferred to his care at Banstead Hospital in Surrey. He wrote a warning for the hospital's nursing staff on Morris's notes. Not a single statement of his should be believed. For the next two weeks, the two men saw each other almost every day. At about this time, I wondered whether a prefrontal leucotomy would help him, Barker recalled. There was no evidence to support the intervention in the limited literature about Munchausen's. Nevertheless, Barker theorised that the operation might work, in Morris's case, to reduce his drive. Morris's parents gave their consent. Morris was frankly excited. It's what I've wanted for the past ten years. He was thrilled while having his head shaved. Barker noted that this may have been a manifestation of his death instinct, Thanatos. On the 28th of April 1959, holes were drilled in the sides of Morris's skull and a leucotome, a silver surgical instrument with an extendable blade, was put inside and cut away at the tissue towards the front of Morris's brain. For a month, Barker believed he had cured his patient. Then Morris began to deteriorate. On the 24th of June, less than two months after he was lobotomised, 
Morris turned up at a hospital in Romford, complaining of headaches and weakness in his arms. He claimed he had been in a motorcycle crash. In 1962, Barker wrote a letter to The Lancet opposing the use of leucotomies for the chronically mentally ill. In his doctoral thesis, Barker wrote a searching 28-page account of his treatment of Morris and wrestled with the perilous role of the medical professional when dealing with Munchausen syndrome. The attitude of the surgeon is also important, Barker wrote, for he may be drawn unwittingly into the patient's scheme of things. The only person who had really embraced the intervention was Morris, of whom Barker had said not a single statement of his should be believed. It was part of Barker's humanity as a doctor that he was willing to listen deeply to his patients and to try and perceive the world as they did. It was part of his vulnerability as a researcher that he believed there was a solution that only he could see. Barker wanted the Premonitions Bureau to be more than another collection of anecdotes. The Abavan material had convinced him that it was no longer necessary to prove the existence of precognition. In an article for Medical News in January 1967, two weeks into the experiment, Barker claimed that there were now more than 10,000 incidents recorded in parapsychology journals we should instead set about trying to harness and utilise it with a view to preventing further disasters, he wrote. Barker used the language of seismology to describe mental processes which might be operating at a deep level within the collective subconscious. He wanted an instrument that was sensitive enough to capture intimations that were otherwise impossible to detect. He envisaged the fully-fledged Premonitions Bureau as a central clearinghouse to which the public could always write or telephone should they experience any premonitions, particularly those which they felt were related to future catastrophes. Over time, the Premonitions Bureau would become a data bank for the nation's dreams and visions, mass premonitions, Barker called them, and issue alerts based on the visions it received. Ideally, the system would need to be linked with a computer to help exclude trivial, misleading or false information. With practice, it should be possible to detect patterns or peaks which might even suggest the nature and possible date, time and place of a disaster, so that an official early warning could then be issued. There might be numerous false alarms, particularly in the early stages, when the operators were inexperienced, Barker conceded. He recognised that the Bureau also faced a version of the quandary that haunted Jonah in the Old Testament. God asked Jonah to prophesy the destruction of Nineveh. But Jonah reasoned that if the people of Nineveh believed his warning and repented, God would forgive them and Nineveh would not be destroyed after all. Jonah's prophecy would turn out to be false and he would look like a fool. Befuddled and ashamed, Jonah ran away and ended up inside a whale. If a calamity is averted, how can it generate a vision to precede it? Theoretically, there might be no premonitions, since no disaster would have occurred, Barker acknowledged. But it was worth a shot. 
There were plenty of cases of premonitions that appeared to have helped avoid certain disasters in the past. If only one major catastrophe could be shown to have been prevented by this means, Barker wrote in his paper for the SPR later that year, the project would have more than justified itself, perhaps for all time. The Bureau got its first major hit in the spring of 1967. At 6am on the 21st of March, the phone rang in the dining room at Barnfield. Barker came downstairs and answered. It was Alan Hensher, the post office switchboard operator, one of the Abavan seers, who, like Miss Middleton, claimed to experience physical sensations before a disaster. Hensher was coming off a night shift and was calling to predict a plane crash. Barker made notes on a piece of Shelton Hospital letterhead. Hensher was upset. He had a vision of a caravel, a French-built passenger jet, experiencing problems soon after takeoff. It is coming over mountains. It is going to radio. It is in trouble. Then it will cut out. Nothing. Hensher said there would be 123 or 124 people on board. Say 124, Barker jotted down. And that only one person would survive in a very poor condition. Hensher couldn't tell where the crash was going to happen, but he had had the feeling for the last two or three days. It was as if someone on the aircraft was trying to communicate with him. They were trying to make peace. Hensher said he could see a pair of statues and was directed to the crash by a light flashing on and off. Barker's notes ran to the bottom of the page and into the corner. On the other side of the paper, he noted that he called Hensher back later for more details, but there were none. It was an hour before dawn on a Tuesday morning. Barker was already in an unsettled state. The previous day he had been summoned to a meeting at the Regional Health Board in Birmingham, where he had been reprimanded by Shelton's superintendent, Dr Littlejohn, for the publicity that his work was attracting. Barker's claim to have cured one of his Shelton patients' infidelity with electric shock treatment the previous December had caught the imagination of Britain's tabloid press. The People, a Sunday newspaper, had managed to identify Barker's patient and his wife and paid them a thousand pounds to share their story. Barker had refused to cooperate with the newspaper until reporters came to his house and he was advised by the Regional Health Board to give an interview. But when a sensational description of Barker's treatment appeared, serialised over three consecutive Sundays in The People and featured on the ITV News in early March, Little John was furious, literally white with rage, Barker recalled. He worried that the superintendent was trying to sack him. At the meeting in Birmingham, Barker had been cleared of any wrongdoing. But he took the opportunity to warn Little John and the local NHS board about the other research projects that he was pursuing. For the first time, the psychiatrist told his supervisors about both Scared to Death, Barker had recently delivered a draft of the book to his publishers, and the Premonitions Bureau. Little John said nothing, Barker noted, in a memo that he sent asking advice from a medical defence lawyer a few days later. The NHS officials who had been sympathetic about the aversion therapy story, became alarmed. Barker was told that he would have to publish his book anonymously and remove his name from any association with the Premonitions Bureau or risk losing his job. What shall I do? 
Am I to walk into a trap? Barker asked the lawyer. He saw himself approaching an impossible situation, caught between his research, which transcended the conventional borders of psychiatry, and the suffocating strictures of Shelton. In 1963, Little John had asked both Barker and Enoch to submit their research papers and journal correspondence to him before sending them for publication. The two young doctors had refused. Dr Littlejohn was not pleased and said he was left out of the picture, Barker noted. He thought the older man was jealous. Barker wasn't sure if he could alter his book or tell Fairley to stop collecting premonitions, even if he wanted to. His account of his research to the lawyer had an edge of grandeur. He described momentous events sweeping him along rather than esoteric research projects that he pursued in his spare time. I am one of those people who is interested in work and has had some success, he wrote. According to Barker, his publisher had already decided that Scared to Death was going to be one of their big books of 1968. The publicity could be considerable, he wrote. Barker described his work on Abavan as essential material and perhaps the largest study on precognition in existence. The Premonitions Bureau, meanwhile, was entirely his idea and the logical outcome of the Abavan work. Calls and letters were coming in every day. At any time, a major disaster could be forecast, Barker wrote. He wasn't sure how much power Little John and the hospital board really had. The meeting in Birmingham had lasted an hour. I was quite exhausted afterwards and nearly collapsed, Barker wrote. After being woken by Hensher's telephone call the next morning, Barker passed the prediction on to the Evening Standard. In the subsequent weeks, he made no effort to curb his extracurricular research or to stop drawing attention to himself. On the 11th of April, he and Fairley appeared on Late Night Lineup, a chat show on BBC Two, to publicise the Bureau. Nine days later, a turboprop Britannia passenger aircraft carrying 130 people, attempted to land in Nicosia, Cyprus, during a thunderstorm. The plane, which belonged to Globe Air, a new low-cost Swiss charter airline, was on its way from Bangkok to Basel, carrying mostly Swiss and German holidaymakers. It had refuelled in India and was on its way to its penultimate stop in Cairo when the pilots were advised the airport was closed because of heavy rain. The flight plan suggested Beirut as the backup option, but the captain, a British pilot named Michael Muller, decided to make an unscheduled landing in Cyprus, despite the bad weather. By the time the plane reached the island, it had been in the air for almost ten hours. Muller and his co-pilot were almost three hours over their time limits at the controls. At 11.10pm, the aircraft was cleared to land at Nicosia, but came in a little high. Muller requested permission to make a circuit of the airport and try again. The control tower glimpsed the plane, its landing lights flashing through the low cloud, before it wheeled to the south and clipped a wing on the side of a hill, 22 feet from the summit, rolled over, broke into pieces and caught fire. 124 die-in airliner, the Evening Standard reported on its front page the following morning. 
The final death toll was 126. Two people who survived the initial impact were taken to a nearby UN field hospital where they died. At the time, the Nicosia crash was the sixth worst aviation accident in history. Fairley and Barker noticed the similarities with Hensher's prediction immediately. The Evening Standard published an account of Hensher's premonition alongside the news coverage that day. The incredible story of the man who dreamed disaster, the headline read. An accompanying photograph showed Archbishop Makarios, the island's Greek Cypriot president, picking through the wreckage. Hensher was a gaunt, 44-year-old man who lived with his parents in a council house in Dagenham, in Essex. Alan was the odd boy out. The Hensher family liked to drink. Alan preferred to read. He was proud of his collection of history books. In 1949, when he was 26, he suffered a head injury in a car accident and was unconscious for four days. His precognitive ability began soon after. He was just different to the rest of them, his niece Lynn recalled. He was very intense about everything. On the day of the plane crash, Fairley tried to call Hensher from the Evening Standard but failed to get through. Barker had arranged to speak to Hensher the following day. Shortly before one in the morning, the telephone in the dining room at Barker's home rang. It was the nighttime switchboard operator at Shelton. Hensher had called the hospital, trying to reach Barker. He sounded agitated, and the operator wanted to put him through. Hensher came on the line and said that he was now worried about Barker's safety. He had been worried about him all day, that there might be some kind of accident. When Hensher thought of Barker, his mind filled with the colour black. He urged the psychiatrist to check his gas supply, but Barnfield didn't have a gas supply. Have you a dark car? Hensher asked. Barker's zephyr was dark green. Be very careful, Hensher warned. Look after yourself. Barker asked Hensher if he was telling him that his life was in danger. Yes, the seer replied. Barker dictated a four-page memo in his office at Shelton, which he called Some Interesting Predictions and a Possible Death Sentence. In the document, he outlined a medical history of Hensher and his apparently successful premonitions of the Aberfan disaster and the recent plane crash. Then the psychiatrist recounted Hensher's call during the night and his response to being warned about his own fate. My reactions to this were naturally to be somewhat alarmed, I found it a little difficult to get off to sleep again and have, of course, decided to take extra care while driving. Having recently written a book on people who were scared to death, I am, perhaps, beginning to feel what this would be like. I found Barker's memo, along with some of his letters, in a brown envelope marked Prediction 3A in the archives of the Society for Psychical Research, which are kept in the Cambridge University Library. The other letters in the envelope are all from the spring of 1967, and together they show Barker's complicated attitude towards the occult. He could be credulous or laconic, doubtful yet insinuating. He was interested in buying a house close to Shelton, a former pub, the Squirrel, 
which had served an old racecourse, in part because it was haunted. Personally, I would be fascinated to buy such a house from the scientific point of view, Barker wrote to Guy Lambert, a former president of the SPR, in April. When Lambert replied to Barker's letter, suggesting possible natural causes for the strange sounds at the squirrel, the psychiatrist wrote back, I am not sold on ESP, but I have always maintained that a purely physical view is far too restricted. Two weeks later, however, buoyed by Hensher's apparent premonition of the Cyprus crash and unnerved by the warning about his own life, Barker sounded much more like a man feeling the surface of a never-seen object in the dark. Look carefully at Mr Hensher's prediction about me, which, thank God, has not yet been fulfilled, he wrote to Lambert on the 8th of May, after sharing a copy of his death sentence memo. I do not know whether we are on the edge of something important. Personally, I have my doubts, but one just does not know what is going to come up when one embarks on a scheme like this. Prediction 3A also contained a letter from Miss Middleton. When the Bureau opened, Barker had circulated a request for premonitions to around a hundred potential percipients, including those who had contacted him for the Abafan experiment. Miss Middleton's letter, which was from May 1967, was labelled Another Prediction Reactor by Barker, to indicate that she belonged in the category that interested him the most. By that time, Miss Middleton had contacted the Bureau several times. In mid-March, she had dreamed of her dead father sitting in her front room, taking a telephone call about danger at sea. She notified Barker. A few days later, the Torrey Canyon, an oil tanker on its way to Wales, ran aground between the Scilly Isles and Cornwall, causing Britain's worst oil spill to date. On the 10th of April, Miss Middleton wrote to Barker again, warning of a tornado or a hurricane on the west coast of the US. Eleven days later, there was an outbreak of more than 40 tornadoes across five Midwestern states, one of which killed 33 people in Oak Lawn, a suburb of Chicago. Barker congratulated Miss Middleton. This has certainly been a prophecy fulfilled, the psychiatrist wrote, even though the damage was almost 2,000 miles from America's western seaboard. Later, Fairley recalled that he opposed engaging with people who sent their hunches to the Premonitions Bureau. Barker had no such compunction. He cajoled, he encouraged and he needled. The psychiatrist gave credence and attention to men and women whose illusions had not been previously taken seriously. His intellectual aspirations combined with their desire to be believed, and either he did not imagine the consequences, or he wanted, at some level, to bring on those consequences. After Barker harried Hensher for further details of his plane crash prediction, Hensher complained to the psychiatrist that the research was having an adverse effect on his mind. Barker reassured Hensher and urged him to carry on. He flattered Miss Middleton, who was delighted to be corresponding with such a distinguished doctor. I send my very best wishes for this experiment, she wrote. When Hensher predicted that Barker might die, the psychiatrist did not ignore the suggestion or consider pausing what he was doing, but used it instead as material to further his investigation. He sent a copy of the death sentence memo to Miss Middleton and asked her if she was worried too.
re your own personal safety? About the time Mr. Henshaw was thinking about you, I had some personal concerns, she replied. I remember thinking that the work you were doing was so important, a prayer must be said for your well-being. On the 23rd of April, 1967, Miss Middleton sent in a vision of an astronaut on his way to the moon. This venture will end in tragedy, she wrote. The spaceman that she saw was petrified, terrified, and just frightened. Miss Middleton enclosed a drawing with her premonition, as she sometimes did, of an astronaut crouched inside a crude, spherical craft. She posted her message in Edmonton at 5.30pm on a Sunday. At around the same time, Vladimir Mikhailovich Komarov, a 40-year-old Soviet cosmonaut, was napping in the living compartment of the Soyuz-1 spacecraft on his 12th orbit of the Earth. Komarov had blasted off from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan shortly before dawn that morning. It was the first piloted space mission launched by the USSR for more than two years. News of the launch had been released by TASS, the Soviet news agency. Radio Sweden had broadcast the information at 7am, so it is possible that Miss Middleton knew there was a man in space, but few details were known. The first Soyuz mission was technically hazardous and conducted under significant political pressure. The idea was for Komarov's craft to be joined by a second Soyuz spaceship in orbit the following day, for two cosmonauts to transfer from one vehicle to the other, and for both modules to return to Earth. Nothing like this had been attempted before. The goal was partly to surprise and unsettle the Americans, who were now thought to have surpassed the USSR's capabilities in human spaceflight. But the preparations were not good. Three automated tests to rehearse the mission failed. Three prototype spacecraft were destroyed in the process. On the 14th of April, nine days before the launch, engineers identified 101 things wrong with Soyuz 1 and Soyuz 2. The USSR's talismanic chief rocket engineer, Sergei Korolev, had died a year earlier, and there was a feeling of unease. There is no confidence, Lieutenant General Nikolai Kamanin, who led the cosmonaut training program, wrote in his diary. Nonetheless, the mission went ahead. It was timed to take place just before the USSR's annual May Day celebrations. Before blast-off, Komarov dedicated his flight to the 50th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution. Eighteen minutes into the mission, Komarov's problems began. A solar panel, which provided internal power to the spacecraft, failed to deploy. Part of the telemetry system wasn't working either, and a sun-star sensor, which was supposed to help position the Soyuz through its perilous re-entry into Earth's atmosphere, had fogged up. The fuel pressure dropped, and the temperature inside the capsule began to fall. Six and a half hours into the flight, it was clear that the historic docking with Soyuz 2 could not take place. The mission was curtailed, and the second Soyuz launch was abandoned. Komarov was told to rest and prepare to return to Earth. He would land on his 17th orbit. Komarov was a distinguished, experienced pilot. This was his second time in space. Even though the flight was badly off track, he didn't let it show. I feel excellent, he said. The mood is good. 
Komarov was the oldest cosmonaut in the Soviet space program. He was close to Yuri Gagarin. Gagarin had been there when the hatch at the top of Soyuz 1 was sealed. For the remaining hours of the flight, Gagarin's was the main voice that Komarov heard as he attempted to steer the spacecraft, largely by hand and eye, swinging from the dark side of the earth into the light, instruments failing around him, through the narrow angle of descent that would take him home. Gagarin radioed, The kindest wishes for a soft, good landing. Komarov replied, Thanks for your wishes. Not much time before we meet, so I'll see you soon. On his first two attempts at re-entry, Komarov's engines failed to fire, and the spacecraft bounced back into orbit. On the third occasion, with the Soyuz's batteries running low and flying almost entirely by his own reckoning of the stars and the planet beneath him, Komarov made it through. Thank you to everyone, he said. He moved to the craft's middle seat and prepared for landing. He breathed a sigh of relief. Then the spacecraft's parachutes failed. The Soyuz fell until it hit open ground in southern Russia, not far from the Kazakh border, at 6.24am. The wreckage caught fire. Komarov was burned to a brick. Rescue teams put out the burning Soyuz by covering it with dirt. For several hours, senior Soviet officials did not know what had happened to Komarov. There were snatches of information. The spacecraft had broadcast an emergency two signal as it careened through the atmosphere. Knowing the truth, the rescue teams at the crash site turned off their radios. In Moscow, Komarov's wife, Valentina, and their two young children, Evgeny and Irina, waited. Valentina had only found out that Komarov was in space 25 minutes after he blasted off. My husband never tells me when he goes on a business trip, she had joked with reporters. The clouds in Moscow turned to rain. The telephones in the house stopped working. In doubt, we look for signs, we see auguries, we extrapolate freely. The wife of a fellow cosmonaut arrived unannounced to sit with Valentina. Irina noticed that at this point her mother began to shake. A black Volga limousine pulled up outside the house and a general approached the door. An investigation into the crash found that the Soyuz's parachutes had a design flaw. They were never going to work. Komarov's difficulties during the mission had very little to do with his demise. He had overcome them with great tenacity and sang-froid, and then been killed by something that was always going to go wrong. He was never coming back. By happenstance, the unrelated misfirings on Komarov's rocket did save the lives of the three cosmonauts who were due to meet him in orbit the following day, because the parachutes on Soyuz 2 had been designed the same way. If it had gone into space, they would have failed too. Komarov was the first person to die during a spaceflight. His ashes were interred in the walls of the Kremlin. Barker was thrilled by Miss Middleton's premonition. You were spot on, he wrote. Well done. In the summer of 1967, an investigator from the National Accidents Investigation Branch, called Richard Clark, 
worked in a hangar at the Royal Aircraft Establishment in Farnborough. Patiently, he was putting together the pieces of a broken passenger plane. A propeller-driven British Midland C4 Argonaut, whose call sign had been Hotel Golf, had come down in Stockport, a few miles from Manchester Airport, shortly after 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning in June. The plane had been carrying holidaymakers on their way back from Palma in Mallorca. A few minutes before the aircraft had been due to land, it had mysteriously lost power. In the space of 20 seconds, two of its four engines cut out. The pilot, Captain Harry Marlow, reported a little bit of trouble. Six miles short of the runway, Hotel Golf was only 200 feet above the ground. The Argonaut crashed into a patch of industrial wasteland. 72 people died. Marlow was one of 12 survivors. He was pulled from the cockpit with head injuries and a broken jaw. Afterwards, the captain had no memory of the final minutes of the flight, but in hospital kept asking, which engine was it? The investigator looked for signs in the pieces around him. There was some urgency. Almost a thousand other airliners shared many of Hotel Golf's components, including its fuel system. Clark found things that were non-plussing. Some leads had been plugged in wrongly in one part of the plane and then plugged in wrongly at the other end as well, cancelling out the problem. Clark noticed that the plane's rudder tab had been set at 12 degrees, indicating that the pilot had been straining to keep the aircraft level. Clark never solved the problem. In the autumn, two British Midland pilots, acting on a hunch, realised that it was possible for a pair of levers in the Argonaut's cockpit, which controlled the flow of fuel from one engine to another, to look closed when, in fact, they were partly open. The public inquiry into the Stockport crash held that winter concluded that on the plane's return to Manchester, its engine number four had run out of fuel. Then engine three stopped working as well, possibly because Captain Marlow shut down the wrong one, and when he realised this, he didn't have time to turn it on again. Hotel Golf narrowly cleared Stockport's hospital. The plane hit an electricity substation and a three-storey garage full of cars. There was a large tear in the fuselage, and the first rescuers on the scene came across a confused heap of dead and injured passengers, some torn from their seats, others still strapped in. There were many young families. Toys lay around. Photographs of the disaster showed the Argonaut's tail fin, emblazoned BM for British Midland, balanced precariously against a set of railings. On the 1st of May 1967, 34 days before the crash, Henscher had telephoned Barker, warning of another air disaster. The plane has sweeping tail fins, he said. Henscher said that the crash would happen within three weeks, but he did not know where. More than 60 people would die. There are going to be some miraculous escapes and a number of survivors. I feel a great sadness, he said. Barker asked Henscher about the potential victims. From the feeling I get, there may be a lot of children involved, Henscher replied. Barker logged the call at 9pm. He passed on Henscher's message in a letter to Fairley the following night. It was late, and the psychiatrist's letter was breathless. He seemed dazed by the importance and the impossibility of the information he had been given. 
just as I'm about to turn into bed. It is, indeed, a terrible thing to reflect that there are now only two people in the world who know that some 60 people will die in a plane crash in three weeks' time, Barker wrote. If only I could warn them somehow. Are they British? The following month, the photographs from Stockport would convince Barker that Henscher had foreseen the Argonaut crash. The miraculous escapes, the children, the tailfin, the sadness. What if Mr Henscher is right again? Barker wrote to Fairley that night. But how can we stop it? If we could, then Mr Henscher would not be warned of this possible terrible tragedy in the way he was. There is no vision without a disaster to see. He was back at Jonah's quandary. He was as frustrated as he was excited. If only we could get more information, Barker wrote. If only we had more details. During the course of 1967, the Bureau received 469 warnings, most of which proved impossible to verify. But there were some best buys, as Fairley liked to call them. On the 22nd of May... Lynn Singh, from Thetford in Norfolk, described a dream she had had the previous night of a tremendous conflagration at a considerable distance. Singh had seen a large building with huge girders, flames leaping 100 feet high and sudden brilliant flashes every few seconds which would seem to indicate mighty explosions. Around the same moment that Singh posted her letter in East Anglia at 2.45pm on a Monday, the first fire crews reached L'Innovation, a huge Art Deco department store on the Rue Neuve in Brussels, where flames had soared up a high central atrium to a glass roof supported by arching iron beams. 251 people lost their lives in the fire, which consumed the building within minutes and remains Belgium's worst peacetime disaster. Fairley remained tantalised by the betting possibilities. The 1967 Grand National was won by Foynarven, a 100-to-1 outsider, after an extraordinary pile-up at an innocuous fence. The day after the race, a young Australian named George Cranmer called the Bureau and claimed that he had dreamed of Foynarven's colours the night before. Fairley invited Cranmer to call again. On the morning of the Epsom Derby, two months later, Cranmer said he had dreamed of a set of jockey's colours and had seen a vision of the winning horse being led away. This time, the colours belonged to Rebocco, a 20-to-1 shot. Rebocco came second in the derby, but won the Irish derby the following month. Premonition, Fairley wrote in the Standard, or coincidence? Barker was in touch with Brian Inglis, a former editor of The Spectator, who was becoming one of Britain's leading proponents of the paranormal. The men exchanged letters, and Barker suggested that they meet for dinner on the 6th of November. A few days earlier, Miss Middleton sent an unusually explicit warning to the Bureau. On the 1st of November, the music teacher had found herself feeling acutely depressed. She sat in her kitchen in Edmonton, Gradually I saw a streak, then a flash of light, and then a sort of grey mist. The word train kept coming through. Miss Middleton put her vision in a note to the Bureau. I see a crash, maybe on a railway, a station may be involved, people waiting in the station and the words Charing Cross, the sound of a crash. 
On the 11th of October, Henscher had also written warning of a mainline rail crash in which many people would be killed. The night before Barker's meeting in London, on the 5th of November, the 1943 express service left Hastings heading for Charing Cross. 22 miles from Charing Cross, the train switched drivers. The new driver was called Donald Purvis. As the train clattered through Grove Park, a small suburban station in south-east London, Purvis prepared to apply the air brake to slow from 70 to 60 miles per hour to comply with speed restrictions. When he reached for the brake, Purvis felt a momentary drag on the 750-foot train. The drag that he felt was the train derailing. A set of wheels at the front of the third carriage had hit a five-inch brake in the tracks and jumped the rails. Albert Green, a signalman at Hither Green, the next station, saw a shower of sparks coming from the bottom of the train. A guard named Gray stuck his head out of the window in the sixth carriage and shouted at people to get on the floor. The train stayed upright for 463 yards before the derailed wheels hit a junction and flipped four carriages onto their sides. People were thrown about like dolls. Two of the carriages had their sides ripped off, windows smashed all the way down the train. Everything happened so fast, Purvis said. In the engine car, the driver felt the whole train rear up and then heard an enormous bang. His coach came to a halt 220 yards down the track, on its own. The wreckage lay across a bridge over St Mildred's Road, just short of Hither Green Station and about eight miles from Charing Cross. At the time of the crash, Alan Hencher was on a shift at the GPO. He complained of a severe headache and was taken to the sick bay. At 10.15pm, he wrote a note saying that he thought there had been a railway accident and that it might have happened about an hour ago. The train had come off the rails at Hither Green at 9.16pm. Miss Middleton's Charing Cross prediction and Hensher's turn in the sick bay put the Premonitions Bureau back in the headlines. When he came up to London to deliver his lecture the next day, Barker gave an interview to the BBC. The Evening News, the Standard's great rival, ran the strange case of the two who knew on its front page, alongside coverage of the crash, which was Britain's worst railway disaster for a decade. I have talked to these two shaken people today, Michael Jeffries, the newspaper's science correspondent, wrote of Hensher and Miss Middleton. Somehow, while dreaming or awake, they can gatecrash the time barrier, see the unleashed wheels of disaster turning before the rest of us. Barker told Jeffries, they are absolutely genuine. Quite honestly, it staggers me. 78 people were injured in the crash. Among those slightly hurt were a teenage couple who had been sitting in first class. The boy had long hair and was wearing a Macintosh and a trilby. The girl was wearing a coat with a fur collar. The boy was Robin Gibb the 17-year-old singer for the Bee Gees, with his fiancée, Molly Hullis. Gibb had flown into London that morning from Berlin and had spent the day with Hullis and her parents in Hastings. When the train began rocking, she reassured him that it was always like this coming into London. But Gibb didn't believe her. He stood up to pull the emergency cord, which was when the lights went out and their carriage overturned. 
Big stretches of railway line came crashing in straight past my face, Gibb told a reporter the next day. Gibb helped Hollis through a broken window. His hair was full of broken glass. They walked along the top of the carriage, pulling survivors through the broken windows. There were terrible screams. All this to get to Battersea Funfair, Gibb joked. It was Guy Fawkes' night. The Bee Gees had had their first hit in the spring of 1967 with New York Mining Disaster 1941. Robin wrote the song with his elder brother, Barry. It was about a miner trapped underground, waiting to be rescued, and was inspired by the Aberfan disaster four and a half months earlier. New York Mining Disaster 1941 was their first single and reached number 14 in the US charts. The song was odd and somewhat haunting. In the event of something happening to me, Robin sang. The title referred to nothing. There wasn't a New York mining disaster in 1941. No one was quite sure what they were listening to. People heard what they wanted to hear. One day in 1995, in the German cathedral city of Mainz, a 51-year-old woman went to hospital to undergo a procedure on a tumour that was growing in the base of her skull. Frau K. had first undergone surgery on her tumour 16 years earlier and had been hospitalised many times over the years. As a patient, she was reserved and made little impression at a meeting with her physician, a neuroradiologist named Wiebke Müller-Forell, a couple of days before the operation. The procedure was an embolization of the blood vessels supplying the tumour. The truth was that Frau K. was uneasy. She did not want to have the embolization. It was her husband who persuaded her that the intervention was necessary, even though Frau K. confided to him that she feared she would not survive. Müller-Forell and the rest of the team at the Neuroradiological Institute of Mainz's medical school did not know any of this. On the day of the procedure, Frau K. seemed unusually anxious. It was hard to soothe her, either with words or with medication. The anaesthesiologist noted an emotional imbalance in Frau K. and gave her midazolam, a powerful sedative that would, among other effects, temporarily stop her brain from creating new memories. She was also given methimazole to reduce the likelihood of a sympathetic storm, the term used by Walter Cannon, the investigator of voodoo death, to describe how stress hormones, known as catecholamines, can overwhelm the heart. Frau K. was drowsy, almost vegetative, when the embolization began, but her dread lingered in the operating room. Her existential fear of dying at any time during the planned procedure predominated, Müller-Forell noted in a later case report. When Müller-Forell inserted a catheter into the left vertebral artery, Frau K., although sedated, gave a deep, sudden groan and lost consciousness. An aneurysm had ruptured in her brain. She died two days later. At first, Müller-Forell and the rest of the medical team assumed they had done something wrong. But the autopsy showed that there had been no errors during the procedure. Frau K. was not a well woman, but, based on the medical evidence, 
it was her terror that killed her. When Muller Forel published her case report in 1999, she called it psychic stress as a trigger of the spontaneous development and rupture of an aneurysm. The influence of negative expectation, of fear, on our health is known as the nocebo effect. The term was first used by Walter Kennedy, a British doctor and public health expert, in the early 60s, to describe the opposite of the more benign placebo. Placebo means I will please in Latin. Nocebo means I will harm. Kennedy served as a colonel in medical intelligence during the Second World War. After the war, he became the principal medical officer of Distillers Company, a British drinks business that had branched into pharmaceuticals. Kennedy used the term nocebo effect to describe the vague, non-specific negative reactions that occurred among patients, particularly during drug trials, which did not appear to have a rational cause. It refers to a quality inherent in the patient rather than in the remedy, he wrote. Every doctor has met the nocebo reactor, even if he has not labelled him as such. In 1968, a team of psychiatrists in Brooklyn asked 40 asthma sufferers to help them with a study of air pollutants. Almost half experienced a tightening of their airways when they inhaled a harmless vapour of saline solution. Twelve had full-blown asthma attacks. Scared to Death, the book Barker was working on, was published in February 1968. Barker described the cases of 42 people who appeared to have succumbed to fear in a variety of situations, from exotic curses to plain shock or a slowly building sense of hopelessness. He took his examples from concentration camps during the Second World War, reports from British colonial doctors working in sub-Saharan Africa and patient histories closer to home. For example, a 78-year-old businessman whose usual doctor had decided not to tell him that a small lump on his tongue was cancerous and who died a few days after it was diagnosed by somebody else. Barker ascribed the potency of a prediction to its sense of inevitability, the personality of the person who receives it, and the way it interacts with our deepest beliefs about illness and death. Despite the warnings of Little John and the regional NHS officials, as well as a second lawyer, whom Barker contacted a few months before publication, he allowed Scared to Death to be published under his name and with a ghoulish, distorted typeface on the cover. At times in the book, Barker veered away from his main subject to include his work on Abafan and, after a long disquisition on the ethics of fortune-telling and stories of precognition, described the Premonitions Bureau, although he did not spell out his own involvement. Barker also admitted his own fascination and feeling for the occult. Much as I dislike it, he wrote in the introduction, I appear to be subject to premonitions, usually non-specific, vague forebodings, but nonetheless worrying and always followed by some sort of accident or disaster. After Barker wrote about the Premonitions Bureau for the Medical News the previous year, his article had prompted a stream of letters. Readers complained that the project was unscientific and biased. To invent a weird terminology for a series of haphazard guesses and to attempt, unreasonably, to reason with undefined and indefinable data is undignified, one wrote. 
Barker replied in the newspaper the following week. Existing scientific theories must be transformed or disregarded if they cannot explain all the facts, he wrote. Although unpalatable to many, this attitude is clearly essential to all scientific progress. On the 22nd of February, the day before Scared to Death was published, Barker travelled to Birmingham, where he filmed an interview with the BBC for the evening news. In Dagenham, Henscher happened to see the psychiatrist on the screen, talking of mortal dread. Barker had met Henscher in person the previous month on a trip to London, and the percipient had repeated his warning, I think you're going to have some trouble. He was sure, like he had been the previous April, that Barker would die at home. Now, watching him on TV, Henscher had the same black feeling as before. Barker arrived in the capital the following day to give more interviews. Articles about Scared to Death appeared in the Daily Express, the Daily Sketch and the Birmingham Evening Mail on publication day. That evening, Barker appeared on television again. This time, he claimed that lives could have been saved in Aberfan if there had been a properly functioning premonitions bureau. The next day, a Friday, Fairley devoted part of his World of Science column in the Evening Standard to an idea that Barker had aired in his book, to invite fortune-tellers into mental hospitals to share their intuitions about psychiatric patients. In the afternoon, Fairley recorded another conversation with Barker for New Worlds, a science programme he presented on BBC Radio 4. Afterwards, the psychiatrist was driven out to Elstree Studios in Hertfordshire and was paid £50 to talk about his book on Follow Through, a late-night magazine show on associated television. Scared to Death was presented as a scientific study, but its themes and case histories were close enough to daily life and family folklore to make it pleasantly unsettling. Barker himself was an ideal foil for journalists, an eminent psychiatrist, a senior consultant, a respectable doctor making unusual claims and keen to make news. Barker's television appearance on follow-through was broadcast at 11.45pm on the Saturday. 24 hours later, a woman who became known as Patient 18 woke up in her white-painted cast-iron hospital bed on the first floor of Shelton Hospital and smelled smoke. 42 women lived on beach. The ward had three doors, one of which led to a fire escape, each fitted with a spring lock that closed automatically and could only be opened with a nurse's key. During the night, there was only one nurse on duty in beach, a nurse named Kathleen Griffiths, who had worked at Shelton for 22 years. A junior nurse split her night shift, which lasted 12 hours, between beach and chestnut ward on the floor below. That Sunday night, at around 10pm, the last few patients who had been watching television in the day room went to bed. One pinched the end off her cigarette with her fingers. She remembered throwing the stub towards the fireplace. At around 11pm, Griffiths and the junior nurse on duty, Joyce Lloyd, had a cup of tea in front of a dwindling fire at the opposite end of the ward from the day room. When patient 18 woke up, Beach Ward was lit by the dim nightlight that enabled the nurses to carry out their duties in the dark. If she looked up, she might have noticed that the smoke was coming down from the ceiling. 
Patient 18 rose from her bed and walked to the fire escape. The door was locked. She looked around. There was no sign of Nurse Griffiths or anyone else on duty. She made her way along the ward corridor where the smoke was thicker and found that the door to the stairs was open. Patient 18 went down and found Griffiths in the ward below talking to two other nurses. She told them about the smoke. Griffiths had spent her entire career at the hospital and had never taken part in a fire drill. The fire alarm system, which had been installed in 1962, was tested every day at noon, but barely anyone knew how it worked. Griffiths told patient 18 to go back to bed. She also sent her junior colleague, Nurse Lloyd, up the stairs to see what was happening. By the time the two women reached the door of Beach, the smoke was impenetrable. Lloyd saw flames. The place was on fire, she said later. The first firefighters arrived on the grass below Beach at 13 minutes past midnight. According to the coroner, most of the women died of carbon monoxide poisoning as the smoke enveloped their beds. 24 women lost their lives. It was the worst fire in a British hospital since 1903, which also occurred in a Victorian asylum. When a firefighter carried out the body of a woman who became known as Patient 27, a letter fell out of her bedclothes onto the floor. It was addressed to her father and finished, I hope the nurses and the girls go on a blazing hot fire, Dad. Overnight, Shelton became a symbol of everything that was wrong in Britain's retrograde mental hospitals. Newspapers printed photographs of firefighters next to burned-out, jumbled beds. Shrewsbury dignitaries told the press that the hospital should have been condemned years ago. As a senior doctor at the hospital, Barker felt a deep sense of shame. Barker's dalliance with the occult and his arguments for the Premonitions Bureau were public knowledge now. Private Eye, the London-based satirical magazine, noted acidly that Barker's brainchild had failed to foresee a disaster at his own place of work. Of course, every scheme has its teething troubles, the magazine reported, but it is a pity that fate should, without warning, turn its hand to Shelton Hospital, Shrewsbury. By the spring of 1968, Barker had a collection of 723 predictions from the public. Fairley wrote up the findings from the first year of the Premonitions Bureau in the Evening Standard. Based on his scoring system, Fairley calculated that 18 of the warnings received during 1967 had come true so far, a hit rate of slightly more than 3%. The Bureau's strike rate was more impressive if you concentrated on the visions of Miss Middleton and Alan Hensher, who, among their many warnings, had contributed 12 out of the 18 apparently successful premonitions. These two, if the evidence is accepted, appear to act as human seismometers who get early warning of disaster, fairly reported. The percipients were photographed for the standard. Miss Middleton smiled gamely. Hensher, wearing a v-necked sweater, held a pair of secateurs to a wintry tree. The attention caused problems. After they were identified as the experiment's stars, Hensher and Miss Middleton decided to join forces. 
On the 8th of April, in a letter to Fairley timed at 6.22am, Henscher reported his latest premonition. An aircraft, 74 passengers, tipped on its side. Finland comes into this, don't know why. In the same letter, he raised a number of grievances and made it clear that he and Miss Middleton had been comparing notes. If you would wish all and anything to be recorded, then we will do so, but this is going to take up a lot of time, Henscher wrote. In the following days, Henscher sent Fairley two further letters. He and Miss Middleton wanted reports of all their premonitions to be returned. They were collaborating on a book. Do those who record our predictions really understand what it entails to make predictions? Henscher dreaded the pain that came with foreknowledge. He wanted it to be worth it. So did Miss Middleton. They wanted recognition and some money wouldn't hurt. The seers were never as respectful towards Fairley as they were towards Barker. Fairley was never quite as taken by them, either. While I understand that to both Miss Middleton and yourself the experiences you undergo are disturbing and intriguing, Fairley wrote, I would urge you to resist the temptation to exaggerate them and claim for yourselves a power which you may not, in fact, possess. The science writer did not have so much riding on the Premonitions Bureau. In the spring of 1968, Fairley decided to leave the Evening Standard. British independent television was growing and consolidating. The TV Times, a magazine which had appeared in regional editions, was about to become a national title. Fairley was offered the position of science editor for both the magazine and ITN. He didn't give up the Premonitions Bureau. Fairley planned to take its records with him to the TV Times. He wanted to see where the experiment went. It might make good television. When he pondered how precognition might work, Fairley's mind often drifted to space and its abstractions. He was fascinated by Lagrange points. These are places, named for Joseph-Louis Lagrange, a French-Italian mathematician, where the gravitational fields of celestial bodies cancel each other out, and an object can hang motionless, in theory, forever. There is a Lagrange point on the way to the moon, where the pull of the Earth gives way to the pull of her satellite. In an interview with the BBC in 1977 about his interest in parapsychology, Fairley wondered aloud if an astronaut could leave a thought at this point, and it could then slip into the mind of another astronaut following months behind. When Fairley was challenged by the interviewer that this sounded like science fiction, he agreed. One of the deep worries is that it is not studied properly, he said. The conversation moved to the question of premonitions. It is a fascinating subject, Fairley said. So many people know that it happens. Believe that it happens, the interviewer corrected him. I say that I know that these things happen, Fairley said because they happen to me. Still, there was a line somewhere, and Fairley, a man about town, was wary of the suburban seers, the slightly embarrassing figures in David Frost's green room, in a way that Barker never was. On the 17th of April, Fairley forwarded his recent correspondence with Henscher to Barker, suggesting that it was time to break off contact with the Bureau's most successful predictors. Barker wasn't so sure. He agreed that Henscher was paranoid, but he found the seer's disquiet a potential object of study. 
Barker played for time. He was off on a three-week lecture tour of the US. The official scientific purpose of the trip was for Barker to visit universities and state psychiatric hospitals to talk about aversion therapy. But there was also the matter of the supernatural. Barker's book, Scared to Death, was published in February 1968 and had gone straight to paperback in the US, where there was no attempt by Barker's American publishers to present his work in a scientific light. Thoughts can kill, ran the cover line. Below the title, a woman in a white dress, the hem bunched in her hand, ran from an apparition. A bulging eye stared through a rip in the image. Over the next ten days, Barker and his assistant Miller crisscrossed the eastern seaboard, visiting medical schools and mental hospitals in a rented Dodge Monaco. As they drove, Barker and Miller picked up on the fractiousness of America that spring. The Vietnam War was at its height. Martin Luther King had been assassinated in Memphis just over a month before. Bobby Kennedy was on his late, electrifying campaign to seize the Democratic nomination for the 1968 presidential election. The Kennedy campaign headquarters was based at the Ambassador Hotel, not far from where Barker was staying. Two days before the psychiatrist arrived in the city, Kennedy had appeared at a primetime televised gala at the Los Angeles Sports Arena in Exposition Park. In his run for the presidency, Kennedy harnessed the glamour and wealth of his family's political machine to an emotional, morally charged appeal to end the war in Vietnam and address poverty and racism in America. He let crowds take his shoes. His hand was pummeled and shaken until it bled. On stage in L.A., Kennedy was slender in black tie. Miss Middleton was certain that Kennedy would be killed. She claimed that her birth in Boston and her Massachusetts upbringing gave her special insight into the family. On the 11th of March, she had written to Barker, warning of an assassination. Four days later, she wrote again. The word assassination continues. I cannot disconnect it from Robert Kennedy. It may be history will repeat itself. Miss Middleton repeated her warnings about Kennedy throughout April. She wasn't the only one. Death threats arrived regularly at the campaign office. Kennedy himself was fatalistic. Living every day is like Russian roulette, he told Jack Newfield, a reporter and later biographer. I am pretty sure there will be an attempt on my life sooner or later. Not so much for political reasons. Plain nuttiness, that's all. After his brother's death in 1963, Kennedy experienced an extreme form of survivor's guilt. And after the shooting of King that spring, my God, it might have been me, Kennedy said. That night, the candidate spoke beautifully and sadly of his brother's death to a shocked crowd in a black neighbourhood of Indianapolis. Barker spent the final days of the tour in San Francisco and reached Shrewsbury on the 1st of June, which was a Saturday. The following Monday was the last day of campaigning in the California primary. Late in the morning, while he was being jostled and grabbed by a crowd in Chinatown in San Francisco, a firecracker exploded near Bobby Kennedy. There was a string of loud bangs. His entourage cowered. He carried on shaking hands. The next day, Miss Middleton was frantic. Another assassination and again in America, she wrote to Barker. She called the Premonitions Bureau three times on the 4th of June, warning that a killing was imminent. That afternoon, 
at the beach in Los Angeles, Kennedy's 12-year-old son, David, got into trouble in the undertow, and he dived in to save the boy. He was shot in the head shortly after midnight, as he cut through the kitchen of the Ambassador Hotel minutes after declaring victory in the California primary. Everything's gonna be okay, Kennedy whispered as he lay dying on the floor. Barker described it as Miss Middleton's best prediction yet. You were insistent, he wrote. Towards the end of July 1968, Barker began to suffer headaches. The pain was often intolerable. He was admitted to Copthorne Hospital in Shrewsbury, where he continued to work from his bed. On the night of the 27th of July, Miss Middleton had a dream, which she interpreted as a warning to Barker. Her dead parents were with her. For a brief period we were happy and had tea, she recalled. Then her mother rose and climbed into a black car, pushing Miss Middleton away. She chased after the car, briefly, and afterwards understood the dream to indicate the passing of someone close to her. The next day she posted a note to the Premonitions Bureau. This may mean a death. Fairley once asked Barker to explain how he thought that people were scared to death. The psychiatrist said he thought that two mechanisms might be at work. I think suggestion is important, Barker said, but on the other hand, I think that death at a certain time is predetermined. He chose his words with care, and therefore, shall we say, it is, to a certain extent, fixed. In other words, in cases of voodoo death, you might be able to frighten someone sufficiently to stop their heart. But there is also the possibility that a person's death is simply ahead, waiting to happen. A warning doesn't bring it about. The future is already there. Some people catch a glimpse of their fate. Most never will. In Copthorne Hospital in Shrewsbury, Barker entered a state of mortal anticipation that he had studied and thought about for years. He did not seem afraid. Perhaps he thought he was being proved right. He verged on the great secret. He was part of the scheme of things. The Premonitions Bureau was right 3% of the time, and, by the end, Barker found that he was within the 3%. Barker was discharged from hospital in the middle of August. He wasn't given an explanation for his headaches. Around a quarter of patients with subarachnoid haemorrhages are still misdiagnosed by doctors. They miss the signs. During his final week at Shelton, Barker toured the wards as usual. He was working on some new ideas about fear. Miss Middleton sent him a warning about the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. I have logged this prediction as usual, he replied. The rest of the family were downstairs on the Sunday morning when they heard Barker's laboured breathing sounding through the ceiling. He was on the bedroom floor. His wife went to him. A vessel had burst in his brain. He was conscious for a short time. Perhaps it is the apparent impossibility of it all that fascinated me, he once wrote. In that moment, before the thunderclap, Nothing was impossible at all. And then the future crashed in.
The Premonitions Bureau was written by Sam Knight and read by Richard Golding. The abridger was Katrin Williams, the sound engineer was Mike Etherden, and the producers were Anne Isger and Rick Wasker. <laughs>